Uh, like Adrian mentioned, if you want to turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel, uh, we'll be in chapters 11 and 12. And I'll actually be kind of skimming through most of that narrative, but if you have it open, you'll be able to kind of look through that and see what's going on, uh, depending on how familiar you are with the story. But before we jump into the message, there are actually a couple things I want to highlight for you. Uh, the first thing is this past Sunday, just in case you missed it, Ashley was baptized uh, during second service, which was awesome. <clears throat> But in addition to that, last week, Wednesday night, uh, Danielle, who you saw uh, in a hot tub, uh, we baptized her in a hot tub uh, this past week. She was baptized as well, which is awesome. Hot tubs are awesome, by the way, for baptisms. They're, they're great, for the record. Uh, the other thing that I want to let you know is that our team, uh, Nicaragua, is back. They're in town. They were actually here uh, first service, serving and stuff already, like in kids' areas and stuff like that. Uh, so that's awesome. They had a great trip. You'll see an update video about that. They bent a lot of rebar and stuff like that and had a great uh, trip. If you see them, just ask them, ask them about their experience and what it was like working with Scott and Jen down at Reap Granada so you can plan for your opportunity the next time we have a trip going down that you can go and uh, ask them about the time they spent in prison while they were down there and all that good stuff. It's, it's good times. There's a cliffhanger for you. The other thing that I want to mention, Adrian's going to talk about this a little bit later again in the service, is that in your program as you came in, Hopefully there is a bright orange piece of paper, uh, and that's going to be a very important piece of paper because it has words on it, and uh, those words communicate information. And we just want to let you know that in a couple weeks, November 12th, our service is going to look very different at Velocity, and so we want to make sure you know about that, that you're prepped for that, and that you register for that as well. We're going to be worshiping through serving uh, that morning, packing meals and stuff, so make sure you look at that information. I'm not going to read it for you because I'm going to trust that you guys can handle doing that yourselves. You ever get bored? Anybody ever get bored? Like, I don't, I don't want to know if you're bored right now, but like, do you, do you ever, okay, yeah, thanks, Tiny. Uh, you, ever get, you ever get bored, right? All of us get bored at some point in our lives, uh, and we handle it in different ways. I want you to think through just a couple seconds, like, what do you do when you first feel bored? What are, the, what are your go-to things? Facebook, right? And, uh, yeah, you pick up your phone. That's what you go to Instagram. You look for some instant gratification maybe. There. Maybe, uh, maybe you pop in a movie or maybe you turn on the TV or maybe you throw your headphones in, listen to music, something to break up the boredom and, and the monotony. Maybe, maybe you even you're sitting there at home on your couch, you're bored, and you look over and you see that project that you've been set off to the side and you're like, you know what, I'm bored, I don't have anything to do, I'll do something productive with my time. No, we don't do that, right? <laughs> Who wants to do that when you're, when you're bored, do something productive? As an adult, you probably handle boredom a little bit differently than you did as a kid. I know for my kids, uh, when they're bored, there's no filter. Like they, They'll immediately let me know, uh, most of the time by acting crazy or maybe they get into a fight or something like that. Like you can tell there's something going on that's not keeping them active the way that they want to be. As a teenager, it gets a little bit more complex or just angsty and dramatic. You know, when you're bored, you just say like, "Ugh, I'm so bored. I can't, I just can't even like finish sentences, right? Lexi knows what I'm talking about. You, you just get, you know, get bored in a different way. As after high school, you graduate high school, you get, you're an adult at this point, you have a little bit more freedom. Things get a little bit more interesting. 
You have more freedom than ever to turn your boredom into something creative and productive or something stupid and destructive. And most of the time, like, those are the two extremes that we, that we follow, uh, follow, the paths that we follow in our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but, um, and this is, this is tough for me to admit, and I've already done it once in first service, and it went about how I expected. But when I went to college, the college that I went to had a curfew. Did any of you, anybody else go, like, after high school, did you have, okay, all right, sweet. I, so a few of us are in here, a little bit more of us are in here than we're in first service. It makes me feel a little bit better, but it is a little bit embarrassing. Like, when I lived at home during high school, I had no curfew, <laughs> so I didn't have to worry, but I went to college, I did. And it was one of those things that really just kind of put us in a position to have some times where we were pretty bored, and so that led to us doing some pretty stupid things. None of which I'm actually going to tell you about or describe to you because I'm too embarrassed to do that, but let's just say fireworks, you know, we're part of that indoors, and some other things that, that I won't mention that we used to, uh, used to entertain ourselves. I'm still kind of stunned at some of the stuff we did, especially because, like, we were sober when we did them. And so uh, maybe, maybe sometime one-on-one I can share with you some of those things. But on the other hand, that was just part of it. That wasn't the whole thing. That was the, the only thing that we did. There were other moments, there were other times that led to some of the most deep, meaningful, transformative conversations and experiences that I've ever had in my life. It still impact my life to this day. Friendships that, like, like our families go on vacation with each other. If we get together, when we don't do that, we go on a canoe trip. Uh, Mainly, I think, because we have way too much dirt on each other from college. But boredom does one of those two things. I mean, it either sets us on this path to doing something creative and constructive or something stupid and destructive. Um, It inspires you to identify why your boredom is there and what the appropriate response would be, or it inspires you to instant gratification, seeking some kind of temporary high just to alleviate that immediate problem. Kierkegaard does something interesting because he makes a differentiation between just boredom and the negative impact of that and and idleness, which he views as something that's very healthy and very constructive and instructive in our life. And here's how he describes the two paths or the two choices that we have. He says, idleness as such is by no means a root of evil. On the contrary, it is a truly divine life if one is not bored. Idleness, then, is so far from being the root of evil that it is rather the true good. Boredom is the root of evil. It is that which must be held off. Idleness is not the evil. Indeed, it may be said that everyone who lacks a sense for it thereby shows that he has not raised himself to the human level. And what Kierkegaard is saying is that it matters how we think about the still and quiet moments in our life. It matters how we think about these times where we don't have something filling our moments and our days and what we do with it in our heads, in our lives. See, there's, there's this distinction between being bored with life or being bored in life. If you're bored with life, the only person you can blame is yourself. Like, that's a, that's a you issue. There's way too much meaningfulness that God has and creates for us to ignore, to be bored with life. If you're bored sometimes in life... And that's a different perspective, and that's a different opportunity, a chance for us to see how the Holy Spirit might be prompting us to lean in more to our giftedness or creatively think how God is calling us to live out our lives or think about where our next steps are or just evaluating where, where we are. 
Like taking that opportunity to be still and know that he is God instead of distracting ourselves and not letting ourselves deal with what's going on in our heads. See, the way that you handle boredom reveals your heart. And that has everything to do with what's going on in David's life as king this morning as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. Because David, at this point in his life, he's been a shepherd and he's been a warrior. And at 30 years old, he becomes king. God has anointed and appointed him to be in this role and a position in his life. He's prepared him for this moment, and it's finally happened. And at this moment in his life, right before that, at the beginning, everything's going well. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, we read that David reigned over all of Israel, doing what was just and right for all of his people. This preparation that David didn't expect for this role, uh, the way that he chose the right battles up in this point, uh, the last couple of weeks we've talked about, have all led to this moment where he's finally doing what God has called him to do, and then he becomes bored. He reaches that moment, that pinnacle in his life, and then, well, what's next? Where does meaning come from now? And it's not the kind of good kind of board that led to something constructive in his life. This is, the, this is the kind of board that we have when we have a spiritual or existential crisis where we've lost our way and our understanding of our purpose and meaning has become elusive for us. And it's the kind of boredom, it's the kind of idleness that, if not treated with care, can throw us way off the mark. And this is what happened with David in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. He starts off innocently enough. doesn't seem like a huge uh, big deal, but in this first verse, as we read this, we see there are two things that stick out like a sore thumb when it comes to David's life and the situation that he's put himself in. The first phrase here that the author writes in 2 Samuel is the time when kings go off to war. So this is, this is what David should be up to, but he's not. And he remains back in Jerusalem, that last sentence in, in that verse. Those are two very important phrases because David, regardless of what is, whether he's there, maybe it's health reasons, maybe it's dereliction of duty because he's not leading his people the way he's supposed to, he finds himself restless and bored and on the cusp of one of his failures. And here's the situation he's in. In verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. All right, at this point, and some of you know what happens with David and Bathsheba, and if you've got your Bible open, you kind of see what's, what's about to happen. You know what, what's coming. There are already, like, technically, sort of, nothing has happened yet, but there are already a ton of problems and a ton of mistakes that David has made with his time to himself in this early morning or late night that he has where he's feeling restless. The first thing is, David really should have just laid there in bed. If he actually wanted to get some rest, allow his body to rest, even if he couldn't fall asleep, he should have dealt with the things that were keeping him up at night. But he chooses not to do that. He chooses instead to be distracted. And walking around on the roof, on your roof, is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it's not that he did something wrong by getting up and, and taking a couple laps or anything like that. But but David doesn't just do that. He starts to look around, and he sees something he shouldn't see. 
which, which that happens. I mean, sometimes we're in those scenarios where we see something, we, should, we're, we're not, we end up where we're not supposed to be, and, and that in and of itself is not, not the problem. The problem is, is that David saw something that he shouldn't have seen so long that he was able to accurately identify and describe whether or not what he saw was attractive and something that he wanted to continue look at, to look at. Then David goes even further. He sends a servant off to find out who the person was. You want to know which way your boredom is headed in. Pay attention to what your mind is dwelling on. See, when it comes to these moments and it comes to these choices and we're at this crossroad deciding whether or not we're going to do something destructive or productive, see, it's in those moments that we're dealing with temptation in our life. And so as, we look at, as we're looking at David this morning, it's, it's not a positive idea of why God calls him a man after God's own heart, but it's what he does with the moments where he's not perfect, where he does sin, where he is, is tempted, and how God responds to it that shows us why it's important to pursue God's heart. And so for David, the way that, the way that you handle boredom reveals your heart, but the way you handle temptation directs your heart. It points your life in a specific trajectory that is not towards God. And this is what David does. He gives in to this temptation. So he sends off. He doesn't stop there. He goes to find out who this woman is. And, and just for the record, if you don't know, David is already married. David is married to, to multiple women. And uh, David is a terrible husband. Uh, and from this point on, actually, this story lets us know that David has been a terrible father as well. It's, it's just the reality of his life and what he's dealing with as he's king. And we think he's re- reached the pinnacle. And we find out that this is Bathsheba, not only someone's daughter, but someone else's wife. And all this is bad enough, but it gets worse. Bathsheba isn't just somebody's daughter. She's also the granddaughter of one of David's closest advisors at the time. And she isn't just somebody's wife. She's the wife of one of David's friends, Uriah, who's one of his closest and most trusted uh, top 37 warriors that had been in battle with him for years. I mean, David is digging himself into a huge hole in this moment in his life. And he doesn't just find out who she is. He doesn't just stop and say, oh, well, of course, you know, no, I know who, I know who that is. No, he, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And, and like most sin, and like most instant moments of gratification, he thinks, all right, that's, that kind of, that took care of it. It's, it's over at this point. It's fine. Didn't really hurt anybody else. It was just, just me as part of this problem until, if you know the story, she sends him a message back and says, well, I'm, I'm pregnant. And then David panics. All this time, her husband Uriah has been off fighting the war that David had sent his army to, off to fight for. And in this time, as David's shepherd, as, as David is supposed to be the shepherd of his people, he became what he should be protecting his people from. And this is what sin does to us. This is what happens when we get into temptation, when we give in to temptation. It turns us into something that we never wanted to be. It changes us. It causes us to become an upside-down version, bizarro version of ourselves that we never, never thought even might be possible, or that we never pursued or wanted for ourselves. See, David's sin turned him into what he wanted to protect his nation from at the beginning of his life. And it doesn't just end with Bathsheba. 
he ends up sending his men to go get Uriah to bring him back from the battle and tries to get Uriah to go spend quality time with his wife. But Uriah won't do it. David tries to get him drunk to go spend time with his wife to cover up his sin. But Uriah won't do it. Instead, he sleeps in the common area near the palace where all the other servants were sleeping. Uriah, in this story, is, is the one who remains ritually pure as a warrior for the Lord. And David has completely lost his mind and forgotten who he was and who he is. David ends up having Uriah killed for this, just so he could cover up his own sin. And as soon as the minimum respectable mourning period passed, David marries Bathsheba, and he thinks he's good, and he thinks none will be the wiser. So here's the thing about those, those quiet moments, those quiet moments of boredom or of idleness and where our mind goes to and the choices that we make and the sin that we enter into. It's never just us that it's affecting. It's never just us that it's impacting. David lost the battle well before Bathsheba showed up to the palace. And it didn't just impact his life, it impacted the lives of the whole nation, of his whole community, of his whole family. And this is what it does, and this is why God calls us to stay away from it. David had become king, he had entered into this role for which God had anointed him for, but he had forgotten what had gotten him there his faithfulness and obedience to God. He had been prepared to direct and protect his people, but here he chose to fight the wrong battle. He had become a ruler, yet he failed to rule himself. And this is where we recognize that in order to be a person after God's heart, we need God to be the one who changes our heart. We betray ourselves. We're hypocrites. We choose the very thing we don't want to do. We can't control, we don't control our actions or thought life the way that we'd like to. David became a king, sure, but he failed as a husband and as a father and as a shepherd of his people. And some of the very things that we've praised him for the last couple of weeks in being in contrast to Saul on are the very things that David later became guilty of. He puts Uriah in a position to die just like Saul had done with David when it came to Goliath. David coveted Uriah's life just as Saul had done with David's success. He became the very thing that he had fought against. And it's a pattern that we all fall into. We all do this. We all choose the wrong path at some point in our lives. All except for Jesus. He's the only one who's ne- he's the only human who has never done this. He's the only one who's lived a perfect life. And in addition to his self-sacrifice and what's he, what he has accomplished in destroying our sin, there's another significant thing that Jesus did for us, or at least showed us the way, and it's how to be fully human. And it's how to be perfectly connected to who God is. And so when we talk about sin, and we talk about temptation, and we talk about the impact that it has on our lives and the lives of other people, when, when we pay attention to what our mind wanders to in idle moments and why a life of repentance matters, it's not just to check off boxes or to earn something from God, is to understand what makes our salvation meaningful and evident in our life. It releases us from the purposelessness that we feel in those moments of wandering and not sure what decision we should make and then choosing the wrong decision and accelerates our faith journey to the heart of God. This is why Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. 
See, one of the things David had forgotten is what had gotten him there. One of the things that David had forgotten is, is what God had done in his life and how he had prepared him to be a shepherd when he became a king. See, when we don't continue to work out our salvation, pursue spiritual growth, we forget the fundamental lessons we've learned to bring us to the place we're in now, and that will enable us to continue to have purpose and the heart God wants in us. And so David spends several months, and David gets a visit from Nathan, who's the prophet at this time, the messenger that God has. Uh, if you'll remember, David was anointed by Samuel, who was God's prophet at that time, but Samuel has since passed away. And so Nathan comes and visits David, he comes to have this conversation, and he says, there's this great injustice that's been done in the kingdom. And so he came to David to mete out that justice. He starts to tell him the story. He says, there's this rich man, he has a ton of cattle, and he has a ton of sheep, resources all over the place, and there's this neighbor who's a poor man who just has one ewe lamb, and that's his only possession. He's raised this lamb like it's one of his kids. He's fed it from his table. Um, he's, the lamb curls up with him and sleeps in the bed next to him. Like, this is, you, you're getting the picture here. And one day, this rich man had a traveler come to him, and the rich man said, you know, the hospita hospitable thing to do is to prepare a meal for him. So I'm going to go grab, um, grab a lamb and fix it and prepare it for this man. But he doesn't grab one of his out of his abundance. He takes the poor man's. He takes everything this poor man had. All the effort and time that he had spent in raising this lamb, the relationship that he had with him, and in one despicable act, he destroys everything for this poor man's life. And as David is hearing this, remember David was a shepherd, so he, he knows what it's like to care for sheep. He knows what it's like to develop this kind of close relationship with, with a, a lamb, with an animal like this, and he is infuriated. He can't believe that somebody would do something like this, and so his, his immediate reaction is, this man has to die. I mean, he definitely needs to repay this guy, and he needs to repay him four times over, but he must die. There's no other option but this. And Nathan looks at him, and he says, you are the man. You're the one. And there's not a space after that. Like, Nathan continues to talk, but I, I just imagine that for David, everything started to go in slow, man, slow motion. And it just kind of stopped. And it just kind of hit him full on in the face. And everything that I thought that I was about and that I'd lived for is all crashing down around me. Everything about who I thought I was and the decisions that I make and what I thought I'd gotten away with, man, it's all catching up to me right here in this moment. What have I done? David got so caught up in being a king that he had forgotten what, that God wanted him to be a shepherd. He neglected because of the things that distracted him in his life and, and the things that caught up to him in his thought life. He had forgotten whose he was. He would forgotten his identity in God and what he had called him to be. He'd been so distracted by life and his current position that he missed out on what God actually had called him to and wanted him to be. That is why missing the mark with our sin is such a big deal. It turns our hearts from being God-directed to being us-directed, and it never ends well for us or the people around us. Nathan outlines the consequences David and his family would face because of his sin, 
But listen to verse 13. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, David said to Nathan, as after he's heard everything that's going to happen and that has happened, I have sinned against the Lord. And I think this is a really important moment in David's life, and I think this is the moment that starts us, starts, uh, us on a path of seeing how David is turning his heart back to being God-directed in his life because he doesn't come up with excuses. He doesn't start to give reasons. He doesn't start to talk about, oh, I was unhappy with my multiple marriages, and oh, this was, oh, I was stressed, and oh, there's this thing going on. He just simply recognized and admitted exactly what the problem was, that he had sinned against God. And Nathan's reply was, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. See, like David, our sin deserves death. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And it's not that David didn't face any consequences in his life. You can keep reading the verses right after that and see exactly what David had to deal with as a result of his sin. Four of his sons die prematurely at different ages from that point on because the sword was never going to leave David's house because of how violent he had been toward others when he should have been protecting them and directing them. But ultimately, God looks at our sin, and even though we don't deserve it, even though we haven't done anything to earn it, he says, I'm going to take away all the consequences. I'm going to deal with that through my son Jesus. And what I ask for you to do in return is acknowledge with your life that I've done that. That's why he calls us to a life of repentance. That's why, that's why David still is a man after God's own heart. Because David's heart for repentance matched God's heart for redemption. See, David goes through, as you continue to read uh, chapter 12, David admits his sin he mourns his sin. He turns that mourning into preparation for him to worship God. And then it realigns himself with God's call. And that's what God asks for us to do. That's how we become people after God's heart. It's not that we live perfect lives, but that we allow God to direct our lives. That when we take a misstep, when we plan out our mistakes, <laughs> you know, our sin... And that happens when we use our, our time of, of boredom to take the wrong path and to choose the wrong thing. That, that there, there's a, a moment where we can stop, where God calls us to turn around and turn back to him. And he's waiting and willing for us to rejoin him in redemption and reconciliation. This is why we gather together every week at Velocity, is to remind ourselves of this. It is that... Man, it's, it's great to think of, of heaven, and it's great to think of, of Jesus as the conquering king, um, but it's also important for us to remember the Jesus on the cross, that he died on the cross for our sins, that his blood was poured out and his body was broken for us, so that not so that we don't have to deal with the immediate consequences in life for our sin, but we don't have to deal with the spiritual death that is a result that we deserve from our sin that we can be redeemed and reconciled to him because of his son and because of us living a life of repentance to be reconciled to him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time of worship that we have to, to pause and to be still in your presence with, with each other, to be directed towards you, to allow our hearts to be guided and molded 
um, in the way that you would have us to live and how you would have us to be. God, we ask that you use your Holy Spirit to, in those moments where when we're wrestling with temptation or we're wrestling with, with how to use our time or, or the things that are going in our lives, that, that we would pursue your heart and that we would be more fully reliant on you in those moments. Help us to seek you instead of instant gratification. Help us to seek you instead of ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.